Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. Um, as we continue to worship in this format, uh, I know one of the silver linings um, is that we've been able to still connect with those that are outside of Austin. Uh, we've been able to share uh, the homily schedule with those that uh, are from outside of Austin and even some that are um, uh, across the globe. And so some of you are familiar with our dear, dear, good friend and theologian, James Allison, uh, and he's graciously uh, offering us the scriptures this morning uh, via video from Spain. So we'd like to welcome James to be with us this morning. Welcome, my sisters and brothers at Vox Venier. It's an honor and a privilege to be amongst you once again. Sadly, only virtually, but the more our ability to cope with COVID increases, hoping you're all vaccinated despite your governor, um, the more chance that we'll be able to meet up in person again, to which I very much look forward. Last Sunday, you, uh, you had the reading from the Book of Kings about the wisdom of Solomon. And that was, in the lectionary, the Old Testament reading accompanying a reading from John 6, part of the reading over the last several weeks of the Bread from Heaven passage in Holy Scripture. So, this Sunday, which is the final chunk in the lectionary of, the, of John 6, I'm going to play a little catch-up by giving you both last Sunday's Gospel and this Sunday's Gospel, even though the text that I'm giving you to put up on your screen is only this Sunday's Gospel. But last Sunday's Gospel began with the, uh, um, the verse, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now this is part of a, a sermon which Jesus gives, a homily which he's giving in a synagogue in Capernaum. So he's actually following a standard homiletic pattern here. But he's playing word games. And this is something which is difficult for us to know, and I wouldn't have known about if it hadn't been for my good friend, the scripture scholar Margaret Barker, because she brings out something that really makes so much sense of this passage that you can read it for yourself and play this word game and see what I mean. You see, it turns out that the word bread, lechem in Hebrew, can also mean fruit of sacrifice. You will see that that's going to be very important, because whenever you hear the word bread, you can exchange it for fruit of sacrifice and see which makes more sense and why. But also, the word flesh is also the, the same word, bashar, as good tidings, good news. So, if just, just imagine what this phrase might be. I am the living bread. That would be a reference to the bread of heaven, the bread of the presence. Uh, which was in the first temple as something giving holiness. Uh, he is the true bread from heaven that gives life, not like the manna in the desert, which only gave a, a temporary physical boost. But he is the true bread of the presence, the one that is the one who is coming into the world. And whoever eats of this bread, stroke, fruit of sacrifice, will live forever. And the fruit of sacrifice or bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, my good tidings. 
So, of course, anyone who's speaking with double entendre like that, people find it difficult to pick up on. And we most quickly go to the most obvious meaning. That's our normal way of listening. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, said they squabbled amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In other words, they're saying, um, he's proposing cannibal to us, cannibalism to us. This is ridiculous. Uh, quite rightly so. Though, bizarrely, um, the atonement sacrifice was based on the notion that the high priest was standing in, was a human standing in for God, and that the lamb which the high priest sacrificed standing in for himself was, in fact, therefore, the lamb of God, was, in fact, God giving himself. So eating the flesh of the lamb would be eating the flesh of God. So they've forgotten that, because they're probably thinking about the Passover, where that atonement understanding had dropped out. So Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh, the good news of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, understanding that the blood was understood to be where the life was. That was the understanding in all sacrificial structure, that the blood was where life was. So if you drink blood, you're drinking life. He then makes the obvious point, you have no life in you. Those who eat my good tidings, but actually the word he eats, uses here is nor. He's actually using the much more crude, animal-like term, those who gnaw on my flesh, stroke good tidings, and drink my blood, drink my life. So they're taking this stuff into themselves really seriously. And he's both using a very physical term and insisting on uh, something metaphorical, the two at the same time. That's what we call, when the literal and the metaphorical come together, we call it sacramental. So who eat my good news and drink my life have eternal life and have the age to come. They're, they're part of living God's life. That's what God living looks like. And I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My good news truly nourishes and my blood is true drink. The life which I give is truly uh, satisfying, truly refreshing to eternal life. Those who gnaw again at my flesh, at my good news, and drink my blood, take in themselves the whole pattern of the life which I give. Abide in me. Yeah, of course. They're taking me on board. Not only are they gnawing at me, as one does food, but they're taking me on board. They're ingesting me, which means that they're going to abide in me. They're going to be in my innards as I am in theirs, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, the one who's giving all this life, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me whoever gnaws at me, will live because of me. This 
is the bread stroke fruit of sacrifice that comes down from heaven, that came down from heaven, because it's already here in me. So he's hinting broadly in a way that they can't yet get because they don't know what form his realization of the old act of atonement is going to take, his going up to the feast. This is the bread fruit of sacrifice that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate and they died. That was just nourishment for the journey. No more. Just simple calories to get them to place B. But the one who eats this bread, this fruit of sacrifice, will live forever. Yes, as we'll learn later, because they'll be on the inside of the creation springing up to eternal life. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. In other words, this was quite a technical discussion with people who could at least be thought to have understood something of his discussion of these key words. Flesh, bread, heaven, giving life. Now we step outside the synagogue. When many of his followers, his disciples, heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult, it's hard. It's interesting. <laughs> uh, they used the same word um, as those who complained to Moses about Pharaoh's uh, demands on them, the hardness. Uh, so here, strangely, the people who have been following Moses are complaining that Jesus' words are hard. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, and that's the, just to remind you that this is the Mosaic language, that's the same word by which the Israelites complain in the desert about what a hard time they're getting following Moses, and which uh, that complaining is what eventually uh, means that they don't get to the, the end, they don't get to the other side. They're going to die before going into the Holy Land. Only uh, Joshua uh, and Caleb, the son of Jephani. No, it's maybe it's Joshua, the son of Jephani. Uh, get to go into the into the Holy Land, into the land of milk and honey. So here they're complaining about it. Jesus is saying, does this scandalize you? Does this cause you to trip up? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And the word used is to going up. Curiously, it's not the uh, word uh, which is used about uh, being raised up, which Jesus uses about being crucified, but it does use, it's the word he uses about going up to the feast. So, in fact, it's referring to going up to the feast where he was before, going up to the more ancient feast of the atonement in the midst of the Passover. That's when they're going to be able to understand what's going on, because then they'll understand how he's giving his flesh for the life of the world, how he is the Lamb of God, who is, whose flesh is, in fact, God's self-giving to us. Then he points out, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. So whereas the flesh, before he talked about, uh, was the pun between good news and life, uh, and, and actual simply bodily belonging, 
Here he's saying, oh, no, it's the, the good news element of the flesh. That's what gives life. It's when you understand something being done for you. It's when you're being persuaded of something that is done for you that you start to have life. The flesh itself is useless, just eating something. No good at all, whether it's a bit of lamb or a, uh, a bit of bread. But uh, unless what you're getting is the spirit, which is the one who's making it possible for you to eat, nor take inside you the plan of something that's being done for you so that you're able to take part in it. The flesh is useless. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So here he brings out that it's actually the words that are the important thing. Every sign that he has done, they've been attempted to look just at the physicality of the sign. And it's always been the word that he's speaking, the thing that he has been bringing into being through the word. In uh, Greek, the word arema can mean word or thing, just as the Hebrew dabar can mean word or deed. Uh, so it's this thing, this speaking thing that I have spoken to you, our spiritual life. It's that which I'm bringing to being. But are among you, there are some who do not believe. And here I want to alter our word belief, because the word believe, we're inclined to hear it, I'm afraid, far too much as a, an individual thing that we do ourselves, a kind of something that I've got to do starting from me. But the Greek word, pistis, means persuasion. And the word that we translate to believe means to be persuaded or to be convinced. In other words, it's someone doing something to you so that you trust them. So he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but among you there are some who have not been persuaded, who are not persuaded. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that were not persuaded, and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, for this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is given by the Father. Because he's well aware that it's the being given to be persuaded that is the gift of the Father. Jesus is doing what he's doing. He's perfectly confident in that. He knows that that is what persuades. But it doesn't guarantee persuasion. There are some who only see what he's doing as something useful for themselves. It's not because they're allowing him to persuade them. It's not given to them to be persuaded that this is God himself speaking into their midst. Because of this, and Jesus points out that it's not just what he's doing, it's actually being given the ability to be on the inside of what's really going on. Many of the disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? In other words, he's being free. I'm going to be doing this. You're welcome to leave. I only really want you, in fact, if you have been persuaded as to what's going on. Because it's only then that you'll be on the inside of what I'm doing. Simon Peter answers him. And this is essentially the same uh, passage that we get um, 
in Mark's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel where Peter confesses Jesus' Messiahdom. Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, Peter has understood that the words, the thing, the utterance, something close to the oracles which are speaking and living Jesus, they're the ones that bear eternal life. He's seen that there's something more than Moses here. Moses' words were sometimes referred to as the oracles. They themselves were things that were spoken by the Eternal One. But Moses' food was not eternal food. This is a self-giving beyond what Moses could do. So this is, he says, we have come to be persuaded and really know. And that's the wonderful thing. That's why I think it's such a good idea that we translate believe by be persuaded. Because the process of someone persuading you does lead to knowledge. When someone has persuaded you, you actually do know something. Let's remember that that's a process of coming to be persuaded and then knowing. He said, we have come to be persuaded and now genuinely know, the verb is emphatic in Greek, that you are the Holy One of God, the one who was coming in, the messianic priestly figure, the one whom John had recognized in the presence of these disciples as the Lamb of God. They're beginning to get the picture. They don't entirely get it yet of what his giving himself to be the bread, the fruit of sacrifice, which will be the same thing, what that's going to mean. They haven't yet seen him going up to where he was before, at the very beginning of all feasts, before even the rite of atonement, certainly before the Passover. They haven't yet seen that, but they're going to stick around with him. So I think that this gospel, if you like, it encourages us to say, gosh, often we're falling behind on allowing ourselves to be persuaded. Let's pray the Father to give it to us, to be taken onto the inside of what Jesus is doing so that we can be persuaded and know that he is the Holy One of God. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.